hit him to the theater and the usher nods me in. They know me here. I descend down the staircase behind the movie screen that only select people know about. The door at the bottom opens and I walk in. The sound of movie spoilers fill the air. The barkeep has my drink ready and motions me to the back. The rest of the crew are here already. This is my type of place and these are my type of people. Join me as we discuss the inner secrets of cinema. Have a seat in the spoiler room. And yes, here we are once again. It is the spoiler room. Thank you for venturing down the stairs, pulling up a chair as we put a bookend to 1980, the musical month here for January. It has been an interesting ride and we've got one for, more for you tonight that is very punk uh, because it's different, definitely I've managed to pick all these different musicals that are rather different from each other. This one's definitely a, a different one. It is The Blank Generation from 1980. And joining me once again in the spoiler room, I can use this officially, the official Rotten Tomato critic himself, <laughs> the man, the myth, the one and only Mr. Ian Simmons is with us. Thank you, sir, for slumming in with us tonight. Uh, I, again, I'm never slumming it when I'm on this show. It's always great to be here. I love it. That's why I keep coming back week after week. Um, and also, I was approved today. I don't. Okay. I'm not on there yet. I don't okay. think. I still got to do something. But I little, appreciate the sentiment. Thank you. Little do you know, you're already on there, and they've got three reviews posted by you already. You didn't even know they're there. Oh no. <laughs> oh, you know what? There's gonna be some other Ian Simmons. <laughs> I got the wrong email. <laughs> <laughs> they got the wrong email. No, they got. I'm gonna get a, an email tomorrow. Ooh, this is awkward. I'm sorry to inform you. Um, no, they. No. They, uh, yeah. yeah. I. Speaking of sorry to inform you, um, Mark, what did you make me watch? <laughs> you know, I always try to occasion. Well, not always, but I occasionally try to get stuff that's out of my box of films that I would I ever watch. Okay. Um, and that's part of the fun of doing this show is I, I like to come up with themes or ideas that force me to watch films. I normally wouldn't watch And blank generation is definitely one that would not even be on my radar. If I hadn't noticed that it was a list of musicals that came out in 1980. And there's actually a couple other ones I could have picked, but I picked this one because it had the word punk in the title and it's from uh, Yuli uh, Lamal. And uh, I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, the director and supposedly starring Andy Warhol. <laughs> Folks, even in 1980, they were doing stunt casting. Okay. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I believe it was. Uh, I believe he is credited as in the opening credits with Andy with, Warhol. With Andy Warhol, <laughs> as in, yeah, he shows up and and he does eventually. But we'll we'll get there. But do you want to try to give the synopsis of Blank Generation, Ian? I don't know if I can. I the movie is only an hour and eighteen minutes long. Yeah, so uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Well, that's a matter of opinion. Um, but 
So here's the thing. I feel like there's an hour and 18 minutes missing from this movie because it makes <laughs> no sense. Even with the con within the context of scenes, the scenes make no sense. Um, there's a punk rock kid named Billy who I think wants to make it as a musician. He teams up with a producer and a manager who get him gigs. Uh, there is a French, there is a, a, a telejournalist uh, named Nada, played by Carol Bouquet, and she is from French television. <laughs> She's profiling him. Not not from like, you know, TV France or France <laughs> French Chanel Sink. Yeah, it's just from French. Oh, I'm from French television. She's crazy. Billy's crazy. They're all nuts. Uh, and she's profiling him, but they're also sleeping together. It's undetermined how long they've been together, how they met, why they're together, because literally every scene they have together ends with them breaking up or storming out or her freaking out in a car demanding that he pull over. She she comes around the front and pulls him out of the car and then drives away. And in the next scene, they're just like, what, what, where did you go? And he said, oh, you mean when you threw me out of the car? And she's like, uh -huh, yeah, she's like the female Tommy Wiseau, which <laughs> is not necessarily as entertaining as you think it might be, but it does get you through some humps. This somehow is classified as a musical. I think there's only three songs in this movie. It's just that two of them are played 18 times. Uh, that's the synopsis of the movie. Oh, and then Andy Warhol shows up to get interviewed on a TV show that's being produced by a guy who's from German television, who is sometimes dating Nada, sometimes not. It's a bizarre love triangle that's sometimes a square, sometimes a pentagon, sometimes an octagon. Because uh, if you throw an Andy Warhol, why not? And then it's over. <laughs> you could have started with here's a little ditty about Billy and Nada to <laughs> but that's don't ever disparage John Cougar Mellencamp sorry. in that way again when I'm on the show <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I, I, you know <laughs> uh, you know here's the thing uh, punk was huge and I know some people who've played punk music and punk bands and that and I I honestly think the approach they were trying to take, because the official definition of punk is a loud, fast-moving, and aggressive form of rock music popular in the late 70s and early 80s. This is a lot, not necessarily loud, but it is a fast-moving and aggressive, in some ways, film as far as in its storytelling. It is unapologetic. It, it you're Like you said, there are gaps and I think the director was trying to go for that punk feel of not presenting necessarily a regular fluid narrative because this is this is a, a veteran director, especially at this point in 1980. You know, uh, Lamel, uh, if I pronounce it right, had already produced a few things, directed a number of things already. He was a name. Um, and so it's not like there wasn't talent there. I think he was trying to go for maybe a punk feel with the narrative as much as it's about punk, who uh, the main character, Billy, is a punk singer, uh, Richard Hell, who is of uh, Richard Hell and the Voidoids are an actual punk band who did an album called Blank Generation. 
So, you know, all of that's kind of tied together. And I think that's that what they were going for. What does it work as an actual film? There's parts that do. There's parts that show kind of a glimmer, but it's it's like it's those gaps. You're mm -hmm. right. You know that the time passage in this film is chaotic. I mean, I couldn't tell you how long they've been. I mean, they kind of drop ideas occasionally, but they really blow through things quickly. In this. Yeah, I mean, there's also I don't know because I streamed this on uh, on Amazon. Mm -hmm. I assume that it's the correct presentation, but after about the first ten minutes, the audio sync is so off. Yes, uh, okay, it wasn't the, just me. It wasn't just me. <laughs> right. I mean, because there'll be there'll be audio from the from the previous scene playing over into the next scene, and it's so disorienting. Uh, it's like the worst parody of a Kung Fu movie you've ever seen, except it's, you know, New York punkers. This movie strikes me as, you know, it makes sense that Andy Warhol is in it mm -hmm. because it seems like someone and I don't know Lamel's work. You know, that's sort of yeah. a blind spot for me, I guess. But it just feels like someone who wanted to make a Warhol style movie of the punk scene but didn't quite understand Warhol because there was a lot of Warhol knockoffs. You know, people thought I'm just going to, I can paint, paint cans too. I can silk screen paint cans too. <laughs> yeah. And now it's just so Warholian. But unless you had that, because I'm a big fan of Andy Warhol. Yeah. I'm a fan of his contemporaries uh, like Julian Schnabel and Jean-Michel Basquiat of that era who made art that was so new and challenging and weird because it looked so simple and so haphazardly thrown together. It's sort of like uh, Jackson Pollock mm -hmm. where people think I'm going to be the next Jackson Pollock. I can just throw paint canvas, you know, paint at a canvas and, you know, sell it for thousands of dollars, but there's actually a process behind it and, and yeah. you know, real thought there. So this movie felt like something to be projected against a wall in a dark room where people are playing bad punk music and shooting heroin. It's not meant to be watched. It's just meant to be on. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, and the star of the movie would agree with you. Uh, Richard, <laughs> Richard hell. I was, uh, Richard hell did not care for this film at all. He did not care for, uh, Yuli Lamal. Uh, he did, think there was a genuine in true punk fashion he didn't think there was a genuine frame in this film he hated his performance he didn't like the fact that the director used blank generation four times in the movie uh he he did not care for this movie at all when it was completed um do you know why he agreed to be in it or was this something that he signed on and then like the finished did he think he was making a different movie than what it ultimately came out as. I think it didn't come out. It didn't go the way he had planned mm. is what I think. I didn't dig too much deeper on it, but I, I get the feeling that he had an idea and a concept of how he wanted to do it. He brings in a, a, a bigger named director uh, who did uh, tenderness of the wolves, which apparently is why, Richard Hell wanted him in here because he loved that movie. 
and he gets this movie and I don't think the experience was just what he expected or wanted it to be. Mm. So, so by the end of it, he apparently he loved the Elliot uh, Goldenthal, which is one of early uh, Goldenthal's uh, scores uh, in here. And the, you know, the way it was shot, which, you know, for that, I did like the way this movie for the type of film it was, the way it actually was shot, I thought was, uh, nothing complicated, but still well done. But he didn't like anything else, including his own acting. <laughs> well, and that's that was the frustrating part is that like I couldn't tell anything about his performance really because of the sync was so off. Yeah. Um, you know, it's almost like watching a foreign actor do American dubbing or or mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, you know, he's got a great look. I just. I, I I did I also love the aesthetic of this movie because it didn't look like anything was set or set dressed. It just looked it looked dingy. It looked like this was actually filmed. I'd never I'd never been to CBGB's, um, but it looked like they believably could have filmed in there. Um, Apparently, they did they did actually film in there. They they, okay. they got the permission and they filmed in there. That was the actual place where you know some of the more popular names, including I believe the Ramones, have played there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the very popular place. So they did get permission to actually film there. As far as the direction goes, there is one great sort of tracking shot going into CBGB's and you're almost going over the crowd and you're seeing the stage and those wonderful mm-hmm. like pointed, um, you know, lens flares yeah. from the gels coming off the stage. One thing I noticed though, there's a table up front where yes. Bill, did you see this? Yes. It looked, these people are all like looking back, almost like they're waiting for the direction to throw the confetti onto the stage. And then they throw the confetti. <laughs> Good. I wasn't the only one that caught that. Yeah. I'm watching it. And you see these people talking, they're just kind of looking back, looking back. And then you can tell on cue, all of them throw the confetti at once with it. And it's just after the camera stops moving, suddenly they throw it and it, it is so evident. And then he just keep looking back. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, you know? And then there's a, like about a minute or two minutes later when they're doing the close-ups of the band on the stage, mm-hmm. you see the confetti pop up. So I'm wondering, That's is that an editing angle. mistake or were they, were they doing, did they throw confetti multiple times? <laughs> I'm thinking they threw the confetti once, and that was a second camera that was buried kind of underneath uh, where people were. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, it's just it, the timing was just so off because mm-hmm. they should have cut right at that moment to that alternate angle. Um, but, and it's it's just so weird because much like the on again off again relationship with um, the, with Nada, Nada mm-hmm. which you know translates to nothing, which I think is appropriate. Um, Billy can't stand what he's doing to the audience where he can't as an artist he feels he'll never be able to give the audience the true sensation of why they came to appreciate his music is some nonsense probably inspired by heroin but he keeps like his <laughs> wow his gimmick, <laughs> his gimmick i'm talking about the character not yeah. anything to do with mr hell yeah. uh, his gimmick is he gets frustrated and depressed and he just like stops performing and walks off stage and just hangs out like backstage isn't like a green room down a hall backstage is literally there's like a giant wooden stage and he just goes and sits on the other side from the audience can see him and pouts uh and that becomes like a motif in the film it's very odd i mean when andy warhol shows up the movie finally gets interesting and somewhat coherent because there becomes a subplot where 
the German TV journalist who's sometimes sleeping with Nada, he's desperate to interview Andy Warhol because otherwise his bosses back home are going to be pissed. He keeps trying to get him on the phone and Warhol was notoriously flaky. Uh, they finally arranged for him to be in a TV studio. He sends, or we think he sends an assistant in his stead, who's this weird geeky kid with uh, electronic violin and glasses that light up, uh, which is kind of interesting. But when Warhol shows up, uh, Nada is there sitting on the floor and she just says, you can do whatever you want. They just want Warhol to be Warhol. Yeah. And what Warhol wants to do is just sit there while he's being filmed and do nothing. Just sit <laughs> yeah. there in this giant fur coat and just like kind of look around and sulk. Well, well, and, and, and look at her. He wanted to take her picture. Well, when she finally... Because there's like the uh, minutes of just awkward silence and the producer and the interviewer, the main interviewer runs up to the control tower like he's just sitting there. We can't. This is nothing. And then we cut back to the floor and Nada asks him a question and engages with him. And he starts talking. It's very unsexy, but it's very just it's very Warhol, just kind of quiet, soft spoken weirdness. And then he's like, can I take your picture? And then it becomes an impromptu photo shoot. And I'm yeah. like, this is this is the best part of the movie here. And it's almost over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the best part and and most solid part of the film. Because, yeah, I loved that whole moment where you have the, the guy who's been bugging Warhol, which you know isn't going to work too well, but he's been bugging Warhol to interview him. And he had the producer. And I loved that moment that they leave because Warhol's being Warhol. And that's when he opens up, when it's him, you know, with, uh, you know, with Nada, which... Pardon me. Okay, everyone. I'm just going to say who could exactly blame him, though, either <laughs> when she's talking to him, she he he opens up a little bit because he's comfortable because there's not as many people in the room. That could be also mm -hmm. it. It's just he's able to have this more intimate conversation, which is what you feel is always been kind of the vein of, you know, Warhol <laughs> is is this connection and yeah i love that i love that whole scene for when warhol shows up actually it's great the lead into it when uh the guy with the goggles and the odd violin shows up and he's played and everybody's like who the fuck is this guy <laughs> like who, that's not andy war who the hell are you and they're like oh i'm andy's assistant he's running late so he figured you know he he, he he had sent me in his play. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I love the goggles. I love the violin. Yeah, that's great. Get off the stage. <laughs> did I, did I imagine it or did I miss something? Cause I thought there was also a line where someone said, but Andy didn't send an assistant or, or yeah. Andy doesn't have yeah. an assistant. Yeah. Andy doesn't <laughs> like how the hell did this guy even know to show up? <laughs> yeah. That, that was one of the lines they drop is, but Andy doesn't even have an assistant. Um, <laughs> here's some explanation of how you feel the way you are. If you'll uh, uh, humor me on this, I, I found a bit and apparently it was a terrible experience for Richard hell. Uh, no one knew what they were doing. No complete script was written. It was a rough sketch of stories. Pages would be written by the director the day of and given to the cast. The director would also come up with new plot lines, such as the search for an interview with Andy Warhol and new characters out of the blue, such as the Lizzie character, who was also his wife um, in real life. The director? Life. Or the director. The, okay. the uh, Susan Love's uh, Susan Love was the director's wife. He, she showed up in a number of his films. Um, mm. 
Lamel tried to say too many different things, which Richard said all gave the movie a disjointed, random feeling since none of the scenes really connected with one another and they were barely fleshed out and put on screen. So, so Richard Hell and you should sit down and have a have a have a smoke or drink together and, and talk, you know, <laughs> talk about how how they did not care for this film. Uh, there are glimmers. The the. The whole sequence with them actually in the studio from when the guy with the goggles shows up to to Andy Warhol and that whole sequence, I think, is probably the best sequence in this film because the film feels like it actually takes a beat and is doing something more than just this relation, random relationship back and forth constantly between Billy and Nada. Yeah, and I think that in the hands of a better, I guess, an actual screenwriter or someone who had written a script and stuck to it, that could have been, you know, a great catharsis for the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love the very end where, even though it doesn't make a lick of sense, uh, Nada has to fly back to Europe or her German boyfriend does, and Billy is going to drive her to the airport and she wants him to come with but then she doesn't but then she does and she leaves to go be with billy she breaks up with the german guy like almost at the gate and then she goes back to the car to be with billy but he's driven off yes and by the (laughs) way she walks back into the terminal and we see the german guy i it's not even clear to me if he saw her and just like well you get what you deserve or if he just turned like it was a coincidence, he turned and walked away and maybe she's going to go after him and be like, but I have no one else now. So I'll be with you, German man. Well, that's the director. Know. So he that wrote, was him. He wrote himself into the script because he got tired of Richard uh, of of a lot of the focus, uh, according to some people, because he got tired of all the focus being on Billy. He wrote himself <laughs> into the script to be her love interest. So the guy who brought him onto the project to direct got tired of the star of his own film taking up so much of the attention. Yeah. Richard Hell pulled Lamal in for this, chose him because he loved his style. And the director didn't like all the attention going to the star, according to some people's account of the motivation, whatever the motivation, apparently he just wrote himself into the film to be the love interest of of Nada, which, you know, also could be on a creepy level because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's like, oh, I'm going to love I'm going to write a love scene with the the uh, attractive French actress I have cast in this film um, because I'm Ooh, the director. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, uh, this movie is not punk rock. It's disjointed. It it's messy. Disjointed, yeah. But if it was really punk rock, and this is, you know, this is sound terrible. But aside from some f bombs, is very PG. Uh, it is rated. Like I, the the scene where Billy and Nada are, you know, waking up in bed together, or they're having sex, and it's all in the dark. They do that annoying thing where both actors are clearly naked under the sheets. But the woman, she's like sitting up to smoke or sitting up to talk. And she's like working at trying to keep these sheets over her parts. It's, it's the movie the blanket. Like, huh? It's the movie blanket. The movie blanket. <laughs> I mean, he's just like hanging out. I mean, there's no real nudity, but, you know, no. you can see his chest and everything. And he's just like freewheeling it. And she's just like, 
you know, I got to keep this all. But I did notice in that moment, the guns, man, she's like, she yeah, has she's, more she, definition she, and tone. She's got, she's got the guns in her arms. She looks like she could beat the crap out of someone. I know uh, she's totally yeah. like rocking a Linda Hamilton thing. I loved it. But here's, here's what I wanted to say mm. uh, before I got off on this tangent. Uh, I want to throw this invitation out to Greg Sestero, the star of the room, co-star of the room, and the writer of the disaster artist about the making of the room to, yeah, I don't know if Richard Hell is still alive, but find out whoever is still alive that was connected to the blank generation, write a book and make a movie about the making of this movie because it sounds way more interesting than the final product. <laughs> it does. It does. I don't know if there is a documentary at all. It deserves one. It, there needs to be interviews. They need They need stuff because the story in the trivia uh, that I pulled up, <laughs> the, the stories that apparently are in there. Yeah. And in all honesty... I could totally see Tommy was so as Billy. I could totally see the Billy. Character. No, I, I think we go like ultra weird and have Tommy was so as Nada as. Oh, well, there you go. Okay, now you're talking. Well, I mean, but, but if you think about it, I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted to turn it around, I mean, you could do a gender swap on this and just have like Billy be B I L L I E. Yeah. Have it be a a you know. And he uh, he could still be Nada. <laughs> da, yeah. Billy, Billy, you're tearing me apart. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> a fictitious making of about a movie that has you know a gender swapped yeah. uh, leads. Why not? Sure. Get why weird. Not? Yeah. Get weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, what's unfortunate because uh, we talk about Nada, and I get the impression it's not so. It doesn't come across in this film, but she. I have, she's got acting chops. She's got some talent in her acting here. She's really kind of trying to do something with the material they're given. But from the, the ramshackle way, it sounds like this film was written. That had to be hard for her because she, she was a, a, you know, she was experienced as well. There were some experienced actors on here and this had to be, just tough for them to to try to do a movie like this you know and and this was his uh lamel's first american film um mm. and yeah so maybe that was trying to do something different out of his element i'm not sure but um it, it it would be interesting, like you said. I would love to see another hour of this film with the fill-in-the-gap pieces because you do have an intriguing kind of story in here. The guy who wanted f the contract till he didn't, the tortured artist, you know, in love with the French uh, documentary video person who, even though she gets upset, she tosses him out and takes him back every so often. It's actually stronger than Billy. She she she's stronger in some way in, in, in many ways she's stronger than Billy, and then you just get the Randall guy who she was in a relationship with who shows up the 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 other guy you know this love triangle. There's actually you can see potential here of where they would make it. I mean, especially the story with Billy because I love the fact of they do allude to it how he's got this contract, how he scored this record contract. 
Yet he hadn't made money and he had been performing, you get the impression, at least for a number of months and had not seen a dime from his contracts. Almost a, not quite a year, but he, he'd been performing for a while, which is part of the tension between him and Nada. Mm-hmm. And I liked that because we're talking 1980. So they're doing that storyline, which we've seen in some rock bios and stuff before about the band getting screwed by the man with the contract, you know, yeah. and I I liked that that was thrown in there. But reading up on how this was written, it's too bad they abandoned that idea because that was good, you know, because at one point he can't make money. He can't pay for rent. He's been living with Nada, who we get the impression has been making the bank and been paying the bills. So the record company puts him up in a loft with <laughs> some other artists. Ian, this 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 whole thing, I I like the statement it was possibly making about rock and roll fame, but what did you think about that? I mean, this was it's you know, honestly, I I was so disconnected from everything that was going on that yeah. I didn't understand. At a certain point, I almost didn't understand what I was looking at. Sure. Like, so that was not as apartment, the big luxury sprawling yes. place. I don't understand. Like maybe she's supposed to be a big deal, but what is French TV? <laughs> is I, she Katie Couric or is she like a cub reporter from a local, you know, niece, tv station because like i don't understand how she's affording to live there uh and but i do like when billy gets sent to that kind of flop house i did notice that in the room one of the details in the very background was a scale and like that scale could only have been used for cocaine like there's <laughs> no one there's no no one else in there has need for a scale now not every punk band had drugs <laughs> I almost said that with a straight face. Um, I was going to say, Green Day was an anomaly, Mark. Um, (laughs) Though some people would would say, Green Day, punk, what? No, just kidding. (laughs) You know, punk, 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 pop. I can't even say it. Punk, pop? Pop, punk? Punk, funko, pop. Funko, Um, punk. Funko, punk. There you go. Punko fop. Um, no, I, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of neat, but like with everything else, mm-hmm. if there are half baked ideas that would have been great to see fleshed out in a, in a better movie. The, the highlight for me, aside from Warhol was, I, I don't know how much a fan of the movie pump up the volume you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christian Slater movie. There's a song that gets played in here mercifully only two times, I think uh, called love comes in spurts. Mm-hmm. that was featured in pump up the volume. Like my ears perked up. Like I was like, <laughs> like Scooby-Doo ears. When I heard this song, I'm like, this movie just began, this movie just registered on my scale. Mm-hmm. I'm giving it like a one out of five now because I heard that song. <laughs> no, I, I, I like this movie better than a one out of five if I had to give it any kind of a rating, but it's just, it's disappointing. It reminds me of a movie that came out around the same time called the decline of Western civilization, Mm -hmm. which was about, you know, early punk. Punk, And it had that kind of grimy aesthetic, the same obnoxious bands, barely singing music in dingy clubs that barely count as places of business, but it had that real grimy Mm -hmm. fuck you spirit to it that this movie feels a little bit too safe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in order to fully pull off. And I think I think it was Penelope Spiris might have been might have done Decline of Western Civilization. Yeah. I'd like to see her do the narrative version of that documentary, even including Billy and Nadia. I, Nada, I think she could have made something magical out of that. Yeah, she could have. Um, and I, I think that's that's the tough part watching this film is you can see the potential here and there's there's sparks and there's moments that never come to fruition they're they're there and they're gone and you're just like i'd love to stick with that you know i was i was i'm sitting here fascinated when he's in the flop house i'm kind of fascinated by the other randos that are staying there as well with you know supposedly on the gov- on the on the record company's contract or dime they're staying in this place as well you know he runs across this character lizzie who's played as i mentioned by suzanne love who's the director's wife um who has this interesting philosophy of how she is you know covering him similar to the way nada wanted to but in a different approach you know, well, I'm just going to experience this with you until someone else comes along and then they're going to, you know. Right. Yeah. Like the, 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 the photo photography thing. Yeah. The right? photographer. Th- yeah. Was she, was it video or was it, was it video? Just- it was video. Okay. Yeah. Cause she's like, I run into you now I'm going to record you until someone interesting comes along. I'm going to follow them. Yeah. That's kind of cool. It's almost like the birth of uh <laughs> reality TV, TV slash, show. you know, <laughs> youtube instagram fame like um you know going back to warhols everyone's gonna be famous for 15 minutes in the future yeah Yeah, exactly you know and she her character i'm like oh we bring her in here she's an interesting character we unfortunately she gets put by the wayside as well it would have been interesting to see some conversation more conversations with her because there's a really awkward cut when he first meets her and then she comes to his place because she's filming him because she's decided this is going to be her subject of her video. And you, he just has no say in it, which I kind of loved about <laughs> that, you know, with her character was just I'm going to film. And in fact, he come. there's a scene where he's coming into his loft and she's filming. She's like, oh, that didn't show up right. Could you go out and come back in again? Totally breaking KFAB, you know, totally just breaking. Like, you know, she's totally not trying to capture reality. She's trying to do something different. But you think they're going to do, you know, talk something. And then all of a sudden there's this cut and Billy suddenly is spilling his guts about Nada to Lizzie. But then we cut back later and Lizzie's sleeping in his bed. And and they're apparently implied that they've got the relationship going on because German, uh, uh, you know, the, the, her reporter love interest shows up and takes her away from Billy. And so she's staying in this nice posh type of hotel room with him. And which is, I don't understand because her place was bigger. So, um, and it shows you folks that, uh, 1970 or 1980 was tough. If you ever wanted to make your own sex tape, because the video camera had to have this really long ass cord to the deck. <laughs> There's a scene where she's a video person, which is awesome. She's using video technology and she takes it into their bedroom so she could film him. And this is again, this was early in the movie and you couldn't tell if this was just a random hookup that these two just decided to, you know, 
go out because there's nothing leading up to it. It seems like they first met each other in a recording booth and suddenly he's in her apartment and she's laying on top, sitting on top of him with the camera interviewing him. But there's this long cord going to the deck by their TV and I'm just chuckling going, oh man, the challenges of shooting video back in the day, you know? Well, that was an interesting scene too because it very quickly, they start wrestling with each other for almost for control of the of the camera. Yeah. Right? And at the it, it's kind of almost like foreplay, but at the very end of the film, one of the, the other really effective scenes is this bizarre montage set to really creepy and sad music we're watching it's not even stuff that not a film throughout the movie it's some of that stuff but it's also just like grainy versions of scenes that we've already seen from the omniscient point of view put together in a montage that also makes no sense but it's beautiful to watch and kind of like i said it's creepy but (laughs) when we see that wrestling scene earlier in the film when we'd seen it it wasn't that well lit but it was still you could tell what was going on right in the montage at the end, it looked like it was a struggle. Like yeah. if you'd just seen that with only in that context, you'd be like, am I watching a sexual assault here? You know, mashed up with punk mm-hmm. performances. What <laughs> is this nightmare? I was thinking that through the entire film, but it really, you know, <laughs> what is this was nightmare? driven home at the end. <laughs> and, and he liked night of cups, everybody. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I just kidding. And he says, this is a nightmare. No, I, I, I kid, but see, that's <laughs> your opinion of Knight of Cups and Freddy Got Fingered is what got you on Rotten Tomatoes. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I've never officially spoken about Freddy Got Fingered, but that's coming soon. It's coming and soon. I, that might even, ooh, that might even make it on the tomato meter. That ooh. would make it on the tomato meter. You're gonna, you're gonna bump that pup or, puppy up to fresh. Look at you. <laughs> no, I'll probably get it. I'll probably get it to one percent. <laughs> <laughs> but I. There fits and spurts, really, this film is in where you get these great moments, but nothing ever comes of it. Even this relationship between Billy and Nada, where Nada is more confident in what she does than Billy. I mean, there's this kind of role reversal just a little bit in the relationship in which she is like the one controlling everything. And Billy is kind of the the waffle guy who he got his contract and immediately regrets it. He, you know, she's interviewing him on his chest and he's like, what are you going to do with the big contract? Everybody's like, uh, do something else. He, he gets it and fleeting, whereas she's successful and she sticks with it because she likes being successful. Right. I mean, she's the they almost have the, they're almost mirror images of each other in terms of professionalism right. and emotional stability. Mm-hmm. She is a consummate professional. She's constantly doing her job. And from what I can tell doing it well, but in terms of emotions, she's a complete basket case because she's the one initiating all of these breakups and getting back together. Billy, on the other hand is more emotionally aloof, kind of like attracted to people, you know, willing to jump in and out of bed with whomever, but he seems very solid and more focused on, his emotional relationship with his work. It's just from a professional standpoint, he can't hack it. He's right. The guy he's become known for the guy who just doesn't finish his sets to the point where 
that's almost drawing more attention to him because people want to show up to watch him not finish his set and it's become a gimmick and that pisses him off even more. <laughs> <laughs> now that is a little punk. That is a bit punk. There. It, it, yeah, uh, it is fun. It, you it, could explore that in a movie, you know, and, and well, that's, one. that's another thing where you could have explored to where he struggles every time he's being serious artist and genuine suddenly becomes a gimmick and he gets frustrated at the fact that he that's not his intent but that's what keeps happening to him and you know there is i i found that interesting that uh he makes that line now people are showing up waiting for me not to finish the set he's like so so it'd be like a situation where they've got this crowd yelling at the band saying get off the stage that's why we're, we're here <laughs> Yeah, because when he leaves, first time he does it, it's strange. And, and his his manager's like, "What the fuck are you doing? You you got to get out there. We have contracts to fulfill." And and he's like, "I'll get out there next time. I just don't feel it. I'm not feeling it. These people are not genuine. I'm not giving them. You know." He's doing this whole thing, and so he's done this a couple more times. It's implied because again, you get these big gaps. But then they mentioned that yeah. People are showing up waiting for him. Not. So he leaves the stage and the crowd cheers. <laughs> the crowd actually cheers when he leaves the stage, thinking this is an awesome gimmick. And it's like I, the anti encore, they don't want him to come back. <laughs> but this is just one of the many ideas that gets presented, but nothing ever happens with it. It, it <laughs> doesn't. I mean, even, you know even with nada and her character and you get this interesting thing where he shows up with lizzie to nada's birthday party and it's you know the the kind of love thing of they oh they used to be an item but now they're not um but they're still being cordial to each other there's still maybe feelings there you know but it's not fully explored though i do love the gimmick of of them the guy trying to land the interview with warhol and continuously not getting it <laughs> that i liked well yeah and then at that party there's the producer yeah ogle guy who's on the phone and the 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 guy who owns the house or he's somewhat important he's like hey pal get off the phone we're expecting an important phone call and then at the end it turns out he's been on the phone all night with andy warhol, warhol. or with someone at the factory it's like <laughs> yeah the last call they hug hang up and he's like well that was a place called the factory I, I was talking to, and they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, that segment, too, I really like, you know, I, I enjoyed. And you get these moments. It's just if you look at the whole thing as a whole, the, the, the full body of work as a whole, it is so disjointed and random in its presentation and 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 fleeting that it does get a bit frustrating to watch because you want to see some of these things developed. You want to see some of these things flourish because you see it there. You see the talent of the cast there too. It just never gets there. Yeah. It, it, yeah. You know, so yeah, I know I made the statement at the beginning that it was punk maybe a little bit, but mostly it's just, it's rushed and makes you wonder what the director was thinking in his approach to this you know yeah i mean it could be a punk rock spirit ultimately because it is kind of 
thrown together and it's got the attitude of like, you know, you don't have to watch this, right. but you're gonna. Um, I love that they kept Warhol till the very end as sort of a mystery because you kept wondering, okay, is he going to show, is he like a cameo as a waiter or something or is he actually going to be in this damn movie? Uh, so in that way, it's very savvy. But the other thing about punk is you don't have to stick around for it. Right. <laughs> if, you, if you don't, yeah. no one will fault you for not sticking around for, they don't care if you stick around for it. And maybe that's the attitude they were taking with this was you watch it or not. I don't care. I'm making it. If you don't watch it or get it, well, that's your problem, not mine. Um, right. And I don't know a whole lot about <clears throat> the punk scene, but I don't know that anyone has ever made an hour and 18 minute punk song, which is what differentiates a punk song from a punk, punk movie. movie. At a certain point, you have to get rid of that idea of, I don't care if you watch this movie because it's going to go on for an hour and a half and you've got people like us who don't walk out on movies, especially if we're going to talk about them. We have to endure them. And this was definitely an endurance test. It's not like if I sit through this entire three minute song of people ripping off the Ramones and just like shitting themselves on stage, I'm not losing the entire afternoon. <laughs> No one shit themselves on stage in this film, though, you know, it'd be interesting. I think it would have definitely. Yeah, it would have made it. Yeah, it would have made it (laughs) suddenly just elevated this film. We we just drop a (laughs) drop a deuce on stage and suddenly it goes to like a five star, a fresh meter rating. Well, no, (laughs) it goes from a one to a two. Two. Oh, there it is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um i i will wrap it up because no there isn't a whole lot to this film it it thinks there's a whole lot to it you get the feeling like the director is making something it's in the in the spirit of the room in many ways in that uh it, it had kind of that feel of the director you feel thinks he's making just this you know wild like art or whatever and and you're watching it going this this is this could be good <laughs> it's it's not though and it, the wasted potential i think is what's the most frustrating part of this film is is that with just a little bit of extra care this would have been a solid early 80s punk you know movie about a punk band i mean it it, it could have been a lot more solid than it was, but I just, and I think that's, well, I think that's the distinction between something like this in the room. Cause part of me, I was thinking like, this would be great to watch like a midnight movie at the music box mm. or something, but I don't know that it would be because what you just said there is the key. There's potential for this to be at least a really good movie. There's no potential for the room to be a really good no, movie. That's true. That's true. Exactly what it is, which is an entertaining, terrible film. Right. This right. movie is kind of boring because you're watching like none of this makes sense. I can tell that there were problems behind the scenes and in front of the camera, obviously, but no one bothered to clean it up before releasing it to the general public. So it's just easy to tune out. Um, yeah, it's a shame. It here's a um, here's a question though. Yeah. I know there were six musicals that came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. This is the fourth we've talked about and two we didn't. How is this even classified as a musical? I, it's, I, a, it's a movie with mu- that is about 
music and it has yes. music in it, but I don't know. Is this a musical really? It, it And this is my apologies to everyone because it's classified <laughs> everywhere that I look. It, it has the tag of as a musical. Hmm. And I don't know how, because I mean, yes, there's musical performances in it because it's, it's a movie about a band. So you're going to get that. But that, and that's an interesting question, that doesn't necessarily make it a musical just because it's a movie about a band <laughs> necessarily, you know, because they're a band, they're doing the music. It's, it's not like this guy is arguing with Nada and they suddenly bust into some punk song while in the car. <laughs> All the music happens normally, occupationally. Uh, yeah, I feel like I don't know what the criteria is for musical, but I feel like if this movie is a musical, you also have to say that Spinal Tap is a musical. But you never yeah. hear about Spinal Tap. You only hear about it as a mockumentary or a comedy. But they, you know, they share that same kind of a thing where it's about a band and the only time you see music is in either archival footage of the previous incarnations of the band or their current stage acts. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm having a well, I identity crisis I, here again. I had never seen this film before. I thought it sound interesting. Um, oh, it is, <laughs> and it, it, it's definitely it is it is definitely interesting to watch. I I was I did not. It's not like I got to the end of this thing and went, oh fuck. No, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I I I did not do that. It was though one of those where I was just like, this could have been so much. better and how do you that was my question too is how does it actually get classified as a musical and i think this this because well i could have picked the jazz singer okay i'm sorry i could have picked the jazz singer but everybody talks about the jazz singer could have picked fame everybody's talked about fame and maybe rightly so nobody really talks about this film i've never seen anyone really talk about this film but i was i think that was part of the draw to the be picking this one versus the other more known names is because I was just, I wanted to see what it was. And unfortunately how it's classified as a musical, I'm not quite sure. And that's, that's fine. I mean, I, I am not bothered by, I it's just a question of curiosity really. And um, cause if someone out there wants to <clears throat> say this is a musical, I'm, I'm not even from an argumentative standpoint, I'm curious to hear, you know, what those criteria are, but I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. I've never seen the jazz singer or fame. So oh, sorry. that, but no, no, that, that's the thing. <laughs> I, now that I know that those are the other two films, I knew fame, but I didn't know the jazz singer was that was yeah. the, the sixth one. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I love doing this show is because I'm constantly being exposed to movies I've never seen <laughs> or even heard of. And I think that the blank generation oddly is a perfect bookend to the way we start off the month with the apple right. these weird misguided somewhat on some level ambitious musicals that just never really came together although i think apple is much more successful than the blank generation yeah it, it well it's it, we went to the other end of the spectrum and i didn't intentionally plan it this way folks i really didn't it just the way the movies ended up playing out going from we, we we went from the apple which is wild and crazy and just the scope and as we've talked about just 
uber like just holy cow extravagant musical to the hilt you know i mean from production design everything and then we you know we move to popeye (laughs) you know which is elaborate in its sets and the costuming and them trying to nail the look of popeye but it's not on quite the scale of the apple then we went to xanadu which is a little bit more in many ways scaled back from from that in some ways i mean there's still the extravagant closing out scene but yeah, it never quite hits the mark in this. So I just managed to pick the four musicals that I think just didn't quite hit the mark that they were going for that the other f- fame and the jazz singer when they came out were just hits. They were just, you know, um, and these were those lingering in there trying to play off the fact that you had musical, big musicals coming out, but they just whiffed it. <laughs> you know, they kind of... But the I will say of these four, the Apple definitely um, production and ambition is probably the most ambitious. And we end the month with probably the least ambitious <laughs> musical, uh, at least put together the way it's presented. Yeah. Um, and not saying that there isn't, as we mentioned before, the intent was there. You could tell maybe what Richard Hell wanted, but what the director gave him was not what he wanted to do with this film. And that's just evident all over. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Um, but again, I can say that I've seen the movie. I had a really good conversation about it and, uh, yeah, I got to see, uh, Andy Warhol again. I, um, you know, there's two other Warhol performances. That I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen, um, guy Pierce yep. from LA confidential. I played Andy Warhol in, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it was a no, it wasn't Edie Girl on Fire. I think that was the book it was based on. But mm-hmm. um, and then there was uh, David Bowie played Warhol yeah. in Basquiat, uh, which was a great Warhol performance, kind of an interpretation and not so much a direct homage. But he got the weirdness down for sure. Well, it's it's Bowie, so yeah. you know, I mean, if anyone's going to to nail the quirkiness and the unusualness of Andy Warhol's personality, Bowie would be able to do it. But the thing I admired about Bowie in that movie, and it's been a while since I watched it, I got to revisit it, but he put in the work. You don't get the sense that he was, you know, a celebrity cast. We'll just put him in a silver wig and, uh, hey, watch him be weird. He looked like he studied Warhol or at least wanted to create a character Mm -hmm. that you could say, this guy actually lives in this universe with with Jeffrey Wright as, uh, as Basquiat. Yeah, and I I don't think I've actually seen that film, but uh, heard it mentioned a number of times. Yeah, it's uh, it's very good. Yeah, by by critics who have better taste than myself, like Mr. Ian Simmons here. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm glad I got to watch it too. I mean, it, it's not when I'd revisit it all, but I find films like this interesting. Uh, you know, uh, it was an interesting watch. It, it was okay. Uh, so you can't say that this was just horrible. It just could have been so much better. So yeah. there, there you have it, folks. Uh, blank generation. Uh, definitely an entry into the 80s musical and a great way to end this. Uh, and now this is where I give the floor to my guests. So license to shill Mr. Rotten Tomatoes critic Ian Simmons. Uh <laughs> 
don't introduce me like that on every show. I won't. I won't. I won't. I just. I just do it at this time. No, I'm. I'm just. I'm very happy for you with it. But yes, Mr. Ian Simmons, the floor is yours. License to shill, please. Well, thank you. Before I get to that, I just want to mention it just came into my head the name of the movie I was struggling for with Guy oh. Pierce and Andy Warhol. Uh, Sienna Miller played this. She was the star of that film in a movie called Factory Girl. Oh from, yeah. I think, 2006 or 2008 mm-hmm. or something um mm-hmm. yeah very interesting but um yeah i'm ian simmons you can find me at uh, kicking the seat which is uh, kickseat.com also uh youtube which is you know kicking the seat on youtube uh i do movie podcasts a few times a week and um yeah as mark mentioned i'm now or going to be on the tomato meter i don't think you can find me there but i'm just because i got a few more steps to officially get on there but uh yeah soon and Every Friday, for as long as it's on, uh, doing a live stream, uh, the WandaVision recap uh, on the Kicking the Seat YouTube channel, 8.30 p.m. Central, uh, watching the episode and talking about it with uh, with some critic buddies. And and Mark has been kindly enough to, to join in on the, the chat and, and give us a lot of stuff to think about and, and talk about. So, um, yeah, we'd love to have you join us on, on Friday. And that includes you, too, Mark. <laughs> that uh, that guy be that no, wait, guy no, you know uh, yes and i'm wait i have to go back and redo when I, before i threw your name to you uh that we would like you to join us as well uh soon to be rotten tomatoes applicant mark <laughs> oh god you, you're really gonna be, you, see now that you went on record and put that out there for my wonderful listeners uh now i'm gonna have to do it because now you've committed me to it even if i wasn't gonna i'm gonna gonna, i'm gonna hold you to it you're gonna hold me to it aren't you i will i will (laughs) zoom call while you fill out the application (laughs) to make sure it gets done (laughs) also i just want to welcome all our new subscribers somehow we've jumped quite a bit in our rss feed and our new subscribers out there so welcome to all our new listeners uh not a coincidence necessarily that we did a canon film and suddenly we jumped in some listeners. So if you are here for a canon film, you do not have to wait too much longer. Here, check this out. Next month, tune into the spoiler room and prepare to be judged for I Am The Law Month. First up is another canon fodder special as we take a look at the canon group classic Cobra. But that isn't the only Sly Stallone cop flick we take a shot at. We'll head to the future to get arrested by the Demolition Man. Somebody put me back in the fridge. Then we'll be judge, jury, and executioner of Judge Dredd. Turn on your weapons and prepare to be judged! Then things will get gritty as we fly with Nighthawks. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you do not miss a single episode of I Am The Law, February in the Spoiler Room. Yes, it is a month of Sly Stallone cop films uh, that I'm looking forward to doing. And uh, the crew seems very excited about it. So I hope you all are out there, too. Thank you. I'm very humbled by our numbers. And uh, yeah, uh, that we'll say is uh, that. So we'll just say now a good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. 
Hey, all my friends out there looking for more spoiler room goodness? Then why don't you check out our brand new Patreon page, patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you can get access to exclusive spoiler room episodes and a whole lot more. You can also find us on Facebook groups at SMPRD and on to Twitter at SpecialMarkPro. Let your voice be heard and let us know what you would like to see in the spoiler room, as well as just how we're doing in general. We appreciate your support, and remember in the spoiler room, the conversation is fresh, but we do spoil the movies.